Hello, I'm Mike Philpott and this is the final episode of The Next Page, a seven-part podcast from the Commission for Victims and Survivors for Northern Ireland. In the previous episode, we explored the idea of acknowledgement and memorialisation and how they're affected by our contested narratives of the past. You can download it and indeed all the other episodes at Apple, Google, Spotify or wherever you normally find your podcasts. You can also listen at the Commission's website, www.cvsni.org. To close the series, we're looking to the future and what it holds for the current generation of young people. Many people under the age of 30 know little or nothing about the Troubles, but that doesn't mean they're free of the baggage, mental, political and social, that was created by the conflict. Just a reminder right from the outset that some of the opinions you'll be hearing are the personal thoughts of those who are taking part. They're not necessarily representative of other people or organisations, but it's important to hear them. After all, history is made up of human experience. To explore the issues, I'm joined by Victims Commissioner Ian Jeffers, Megan Fair, who's coordinator of the Journey to Empowerment programme, and Emer O'Keefe, who's a member of the Northern Ireland Youth Forum. Ian, I'll start with you. We're calling this episode Passing the Pen. Given what we've already discussed in this series, what what does that phrase mean to you? I think in some ways it's an acknowledgement that the future is in the hands of our young people. It's We're passing the pen to our young people to write that future. But in saying that, we can't pass the buck. There's many things we have not done and some people are looking for our young people to pick up those pieces. So there's lots we still have to do before we can properly pass the pen and say, we've done a good job here, now over to you. But I think many of our young people are looking at it saying, come on, give us a chance to write the future here because we could probably do a better job. Emer, you were recently at an event at Stormont marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. What did you find out or learn at that? So the event was run by the Northern Ireland Youth Forum Executive Committee and there was a survey run towards the start of the event that was then discussed towards the end and some of the statistics really stood out to me. Um, 94% of the young people in attendance said that they had experienced sectarianism and 80% felt the paramilitary still had a strong role in their communities. There was a lot of discussion about what the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement meant to us and I think that young people are often left out of this conversation, even though we are a, a result of this conflict. What, is, what does it mean to you, the Good Friday Agreement and the Troubles? So to me, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, it, it's a symbol of hope, a symbol that Northern Ireland can move forward from the conflict. The Troubles themselves, to me, it's it's family history, it's sorrow and it's pain and it's loss, but it, it's still quite a a real reality now. Not that the violence exists on the streets in the same way that it did, but the trauma that was caused by the troubles still lives. And unfortunately, with our political system here, the Good Friday Agreement, you know, I, I don't want to say that institutionalized sectarianism but it, it created these divides in government and people have to put themselves in camps so I, I think that there is a lot of work to be done you know the Good Friday Agreement was a blueprint it wasn't a concrete plan that we will follow for all time and as I said I think young people need to be included in this conversation about the troubles because there is so much misunderstanding and misinformation to my generation so yeah I I 
to me, Good Friday Agreement was hope, but there is a lot to be done. When you're getting together with friends, what do you talk about? I mean, I'm sure you don't talk about Northern Ireland politics all the time. Unfortunately, I do. Um, <laughs> I am a politics student as well. So I um, my family was quite involved in politics growing up. I would consider myself very well educated when it comes to politics. and I'm very lucky to be in that position. I Sadly, we do sit around some Friday nights and discuss Northern Irish politics. But I think generally... Does everybody agree? In terms of their political stance... You mean in terms of party support? No, I, I do think between my friends, there is a general agreement of the process has stalled and the way that our political system is set up means that we can't move forward properly and discussing with young people at the Good Friday Agreement event that we were talking about there, it seems to be a view that's shared amongst young people. So unfortunately, I think, you know, you're either really, really into politics here or you have no interest at all. And that zero-sum game of unionist nationalists has then translated into actual democratic participation. What, what do you think needs to happen in terms of politics here? I think that we need to make the next proper step from the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, we had St Andrews up to new decade, new approach. But the reality is, you know, I think Stormont has been functioning, I think, 60% of the time-ish since um, December 1999. So a genuine, honest and open conversation about how we reform our political system in order to move forward, because the way things stand, if it continues the way it is, we're just going to continue being in these camps. Megan, what does the Good Friday Agreement 25 years on mean to you? I would be similar and say that it was hopeful for me. Uh, we talk about communities transitioning from violence and I, with my work and with, you know, I'm part of the Stop Attacks Forum as well and with what we are doing, I think I see the side that maybe isn't filled with hope, the side that communities have not transitioned out of violence, communities who are afraid, who are, you know, held back by violence and by gangs and by gang control. Johnny Byrne puts it a really interesting way. He says about conflict architecture. And for me, in order for us to transition and for us to actually move in the way that I think the hopefulness of the Good Friday Agreement brought, we need to look at that. We need to look at the, the things our young people are seeing, like peace walls, murals, all of these images that are conflict architecture that they're facing every single day. So I am a little bit more cynical, I think, about it, but I am I am still hopeful that, you know, a vision of what's to come, looking at young people I'm speaking to, the dreams and aspirations that they have, I don't want those dreams snuffed out by gangs and snuffed out by certain community members. Um, Explain to me, if you would, some, yeah. of the, some of the things you've seen and learned as part of the Stop Attacks Forum. Yes, yeah, so we were formed mostly to target um, and to raise awareness and noise about young people who were facing paramilitary-style attacks. So that is not the case. Most of the time, young people, when I say young people, I mean under 18, there's definitely been people in their 20s that have been attacked. But we have seen that there hasn't been a, an attack on a young person in that to that level to, you know, a paramilitary-style attack in terms of a shooting since 2020. 
But also that could be something that's just not reported. It's very hard to hide that stat. But the thing about stop attacks is we're now seeing the language that has changed from within news reporting as well. We're not seeing things as being deemed as an attack. We're seeing things being deemed as an aggravated burglary, for example. So language around paramilitaries and, and the way they're operating has changed. And really, stop attacks and what we want to do is continue to raise that awareness as a human rights abuse. The people's human rights are being infringed when they're being attacked by paramilitary gangs. For young people, the big thing that, you know, I'm picking up on Emer's transgenerational trauma point is they're witnessing, they're maybe in the homes where these attacks are being carried out. So maybe they're not being directly injured by these attacks, but they are maybe witnessing or hearing or one of the recent attacks that happened. There was a video that was sent round and I received the video myself on my work phone from, you know, a young person. And it was a video of the aftermath of an attack where somebody who had been attacked had been pointing out their different wounds. And it was gruesome and it's traumatic. And when I closed my eyes that night, that's the image I seen. So I'm thinking about young people who are 14, 15, 16, terrified already of paramilitary gangs, then seeing this video. Is, is social media adding to the problem? Um, I think it can be... Two different things. I think a lot of people in an older generation are afraid of social media, but young people see the potential for social media and see the potential for messages of hope. There's a lot of different people who are utilising, you know, social media to build a business or to build all these different things and being real entrepreneurs. And that is, you know, people from here are wheeler dealers. They're good at that. They're really creative and innovative and it's really inspiring. But the other side of that is, you know, the use of the likes of WhatsApp to spread mass messages or to arrange, you know, a riot or Snapchat to send, you know, different messages, different groups and stuff like that. So it can be utilised for good or bad. It's not necessarily good or bad. It just can be utilised in different ways. There was one especially disturbing thing that I saw when I was doing some research for this episode, and that was how paramilitaries encouraged young people to become engaged in riots. Mm. Tell me about that and the financial implications for the young people. Yeah, so, you know, I think we we are so accustomed to the term paramilitary that we just say it. We, oh, paramilitary this, paramilitary that. And this is organised criminal gangs. If we are going to use language to make it as stark as it should be, these are organised criminal gangs. And they are manipulating and grooming and coercing children, young people in any way they can. So it could be something like they maybe has have loaned a child money for something. I show children, young people this video around county lines that happens mostly in mainland UK. But I show them a video about somebody who was lent 500 quid for to go away with the local boxing club. And then he had to go and you know do all these different things for this local gang member to pay him back. It's the same thing as that. So it could be, and I'm not saying it necessarily is all the time, but it could be somebody lending money. It could be them telling a young person to move drugs, to take drugs from one place to another, to go to Dublin to pick up drugs and come back on the train. It could be them having to sell and disperse those drugs. So it is a county lines type model, which is obviously human trafficking and child criminal exploitation. But we just 
ignore that. We give it a societal shrug, I think Father McGill describes it as that, who's a Belfast hero. So he says it's a societal shrug of, well, we don't, you know, we don't really care. We do care and we don't care. So are we pillaging children and young people in order to protect paramilitaries? Maybe. And that's that's unfortunate because these are organised criminals and they're not going to stop while we give them the status of paramilitary as members of our community, as the people who are in charge when they shouldn't be and they, young people are not looking to them for leadership or they, they don't want to be looking to them for leadership or belonging and they have to sometimes. All the young people you're talking about, are they all from deprived areas for want of a better term? Yeah, the young people I've witnessed, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a series of things. It's And these gang members know that that is going to, that's effective. So if you're a child in poverty and you see the financial struggle that your parents are in and you think, I couldn't possibly ask mum or dad or whoever for £100 or I couldn't ask them for this, that, the other. They And children want to be self-sufficient. They want to kind of be independent and they want to make sure that, oh, I can, I'm, you know, I'm a big boy or girl, I can do this, I can do, you know, I can look after myself. So they won't have, you know, they won't be able to assess the risk. If you think about even basic brain development, they ha- the brain hasn't developed enough to assess risk. The prefrontal cortex hasn't developed enough to assess the risk of actually what it means to go to a gang member and take £100, which will, you know, basically instantaneously double. It'll be £200 you owe me back. Now it'll be 500 and then, well, if you don't pay me back, here's what I'm going to do to you or your family or, you know, whoever. Emer, you spoke at the outset about sectarianism. 94% of, of young people having experienced sectarianism. Uh, you also spoke about paramilitaries. What do you think are the effects of both of those things on your generation? I think the effects are wide ranging and affect many aspects of our lives. Um I would like to clarify, you know, although the Good Friday Agreement is a symbol of hope, I completely agree with what you are saying, that organised gangs play a strong role in a lot of people's lives today. I am from North Belfast. Um, I was born two years after the agreement, but I couldn't walk home from school a certain way because of my uniform. Times that I did walk up the road that I lived on, I had people shout derogatory terms when they were coming down from their school. Our segregated school system, you know, 90% of schools in Northern Ireland are, you know, segregated on the basis of religion. You know, we're not given the opportunity to meet people from the other side. If you deny people the opportunity to actually mix with those from this so-called opposing community, then, you know, they're always going to be seen as an enemy. We have more peace walls than we did during the Troubles now. And we were discussing at one of the youth sessions that we were doing about the Troubles. We were talking about what did the Troubles look like in our community. And it was intimidating murals, presence of the police, these walls, division. I knew growing up that when I left my front door, I could go left up the road, but I couldn't go right down the road. Sectarianism plays a massive role in our upbringing here and it has not gone away. When, when we come into paramilitaries, you know, I would love to write a research paper on this one day, but drugs in Northern Ireland, I think that there's an epidemic of drugs. We've seen drug-related deaths double since 2010 to 2020. I think that many people would be hard-pressed, regardless really of socioeconomic background, 
to not know, at least know somebody who does drugs. And these paramilitaries, although I, I don't like giving them that term because it's, it's this idea of the past that doesn't exist today. They're organized crimes and or organized crime gangs. When they lost purpose, they found it in another way and how they decided they were going to maintain control over communities was to get into drugs. Because, I mean, once you've got somebody dependent, then, you know, it's, it's very, very easy to control them. Like what you were saying there, like it, it, it is about the control. It's about you borrow a wee bit of money here or you get a wee bit of, I don't know, weed on strap. And next thing you know, that's building up and building up. And then they could be telling you that you're going to have to start dealing to be able to you know, to pay back your debt or worse, you or your family will be hurt. I think the the role of paramilitaries is far too strong in our communities today. And this prevalence of sectarianism in young people alongside these groups who are maintaining course of control through drugs and violence, it has no place in really any part of the world, but I mean, particularly in Ireland and the UK in the 21st century, there are people within these groups who have the mindset that it's 30, 40 years ago, and it's not. But I struggle to see the real work to bring young people who are in particularly deprived positions. I, I don't see them getting the help that they need to to stop them falling into the hands of these people. Do you do you find the whole thing utterly depressing? I massively, yeah. I mean, Northern Ireland has the highest suicide rate in the UK. Mental health um, was cited as the largest cause of illness in a paper published by the Assembly in 2017. Mental health is something that I'm very very passionate about. I was lucky to be part of a project there in. 2016, 17, 18 called Elephant in the Room. And nine of us, we surveyed 1,300 young people and we face-to-face interviewed, I think it was about 300, I want to say. From that, we found that 76% of young people here were afraid to talk about mental health and the main issues that were coming out was about stigma, schools and safe spaces. We don't have the places to talk about this. And I think, you know, that is a result of, transgenerational trauma but I've lost people to suicide I know many many people that have it's mental health runs a theme here and when when somebody is mentally unwell going to drugs is very very easy because you're already susceptible and with the reality of our situation here would you be rather living in this present or would you be rather in an altered state, a state that makes this seem a bit better, that there is going to be more hope and things aren't just going to stay the same. But yeah, I would say that it's a a fairly depressing place at times, Northern Ireland, particularly Belfast, I think. But, you know, our celebrations of culture, the fact that I'm getting to do these projects and go to these events where I can sit across the table with a wee boy who's from a very loyalist part of North Belfast, I would have never have had the chance to have that conversation with him that I've I've gotten the opportunity to now. But it's those bits of hope that shine through. But it's very difficult to maintain that positivity when it just seems that things, they're not even getting better or staying the same. It often feels like they're getting worse. And when you meet somebody that you wouldn't have had the opportunity to meet before, 
What what do you learn from from that encounter? I think I was 18 and I was speaking to a woman who was talking about her experience of being from a Protestant background and marrying a Catholic and coming together. And Leslie Veronica um, is her name. She taught me politics in the Met. She said that no matter the community, the problems are always the same. And this division that we have prevents people from seeing that and in, in getting to speak to people that I would never have had the chance to have anyway. Like it reinforces a sense of solidarity, community. You know, this idea that we can go across the barricade, that we are all facing the same problems here, but there are different things in place, whether it's political or the conflict architecture or whatever else, you know, that's stopping us from seeing these people as the same as us. Ian, what are your thoughts on what you've just heard? I think, I I feel like I need to take this particular podcast and let Megan and Emer's voices be heard by those in power or those that don't take power that uh, they've been given because I am always a glass half full guy. But you cannot listen to what Megan and Emer say with some degree of concern for the future. But I'm also, you know, take from it things like, you know, we've heard a beacon of hope and an acknowledgement that the Good Friday Agreement was but just a blueprint. It wasn't a solution. It's a plan, but it's a plan that needs work done to it. And that has to keep coming forward. And if anything, if we take from this, is the need to really work on that plan. We owe it to our young people. I think, unfortunately, we or like every other part of you know the UK and Ireland with the drugs problems that we have. But put in that a post-conflict society, put in that the continual influence of paramilitaries or criminal gangs, call them what you want, and it does make the matter worse. So what we've got to do is be able to show some leadership in that. And that's why I think you know the voices of people like Megan and Emer coming forward and speaking up and saying what it's like to be a young person. Because the reality is the young people will just leave this place. And, you know, those that are stuck in those deprived areas, remember the deprived wards in Northern Ireland have not changed over the last 50 years. It's the same postcodes. 50 years, nothing's different. It doesn't impact people on the Gold Coast, but it impacts people in the heart of the bog side or in East Belfast or wherever it may be. So I think that's what we've really got to challenge ourselves as a society. And if we, if we take anything from this particular episode, it's the voice of our young people here today saying, come on, we've got to work on this. We've got to pull together to find a solution. And we know, and Emer said it, sit around the table, we can share our differences. We can do that in a way that we don't need to pick up the gun to, to actually <laughs> argue against each other. We can share them around the table and we can agree to disagree, but we can do it in a good way and we can find a way forward because, as you rightly said, no matter the community, the problems are still the same. And we've got to look at that together to solve them. Megan, what encourages you to stay here and not leave? I had heard a TED Talk once, <laughs> which was about a guy who was from Detroit and bought a house that was falling apart in Detroit and talked about this notion of radical neighbourliness. And he said something in that about the most radical thing I did was stay put. And I think, you know, when I say this to people who have left this place, friends of mine who, you know, the saying is always the Irish are fit for leaving or built for leaving, whatever way it's, it's worded. 
But the most radical thing I did was stay put. The most radical thing I'll do is stay put in this place. Because how do I expect this to change? How do I expect to lead young people into change? To be a role model for these young people? To say, not in my name, these these gangs, not in my name will you be radicalised and you know criminalised by a system that's meant to protect you. Not in my name will this happen. I will stay, I'll stay with you and I'll stay put and I'll challenge the systems that want to put them into this box of, oh, are you us-uns or them-uns or where are you? Where do you stand? And actually, you know, they they can start, they can just stand in the middle and say, you know what, this is, this is where we belong. We belong as a united society. We belong as people who are painting our own future without the pressure of gangs lording over us. We belong in a space where we can actually embrace because working class people, regardless of your divide, have more in common than people who are in the upper echelons of, of society. They have more in common. A working class Republican has more in common with a working class loyalist than they do with people who are in power or rich or whatever. And I think once we realise that and we encourage our young people to realise that, then we can actually inspire them to to say, okay, what do you want to do now? You know, when you see young people painting on where the peace walls are in Lower Falls, there's an amazing image on that on the peace wall in the in Northumberland Street. And it's just this beautiful image of a sunset and all these young people have painted this with like a peace sign in the hands and it's just so powerful. But the most radical thing I did was stay put and the most radical thing I'll continue to do is stay here and fight for the rights of our young people, to fight for them to be heard, but also not in a way that I'm speaking on behalf of children and young people, in a way that I'm amplifying their voice. And I'm saying, you know what, Article 12 of the UNCRC talks about participation what do you see the future looking like? You have you hold that pen or paintbrush, whatever way you want to create that future. Let's do it. Let's go and inspire them to try and, and bring change, but also not put all of the ownership on them to do that. I'll take the heavy work while you do the vision work. Emer, what makes you want to stay? I think if I'm being totally honest, it's the anxiety of going somewhere that's so different from here, anywhere else. I got the opportunity last year, got a few short breaks to mainly Germany, actually. And and coming back here afterwards was hard because you see what else is out there. I think that Megan put it brilliantly there. I, I couldn't say it any better than you just did. It. I want to be part of this change. I want to create a Northern Ireland where my children can grow up without having sectarian comments hurled at them or fear of paramilitary control in their communities or never getting to know the people who live a street over because they're from the other side. It's, I want to be part of this place getting better, but I, it's difficult at times to see a future here. I know a lot of people who've already left. I know a lot of people who are planning to leave and to never come back, but this will always be my home. And it's where I've grown up. It's where my family have grown up. And I owe my family and I owe my child, like that, you know, myself as a child to make this place better. So as I said, you know, I can't put it any better than Megan just did, but it is wanted to be part of creating real change. Ian, are you encouraged to hear that? 
it's fantastic. When I reflect that I left here in 1998, 97-98, and had my first child in England in 1999 because I didn't want to bring up children in Northern Ireland. I've now got four children and, you know, my last three were, were born in Belfast and, you know, I just need to encourage them to stay and take the fight on with you guys. Ian, Eimear, Megan, thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to The Next Page. That concludes the current series of podcasts. But it doesn't end the conversation. We'd like to hear from you about what you've heard in these seven podcasts. Or maybe you have a story about your own experience that you'd like to share. If so, you can email the Commission's office, commission at cvsni.org, and use the word podcast in the subject line. You can find out more about the Commission's work on the website, www.cvsni.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at NIVictims.com. The next page is produced by Start Together Studios for the Commission for Victims and Survivors. I'm Mike Philpott. The executive producer is Alana Fisher. <laughs>